Welcome to As Luck Would Have It. My name is Corbin and I'm a member of the Church Council here at Leichhardt Uniting. We're a church based on Gadigal and Wongal land in Sydney, Australia. You can find us at Leichhardt Uniting Church, Luck, on Facebook. Our sermons are on YouTube under the same name. And if you want to find out more information about our church and our team, head to likeartuniting.org.au. In the second episode of our Discipleship 101 series for Lent 2024, we'll be sharing a sermon by Reverend Adrian Sukumar White titled The Cost of Discipleship. Originally preached in March 2019, this sermon delves into Romans 12, 1 through 8 and Mark chapter 8 verses 27 to 35. I'll provide the reading ahead of the sermon. The first reading is from the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, from the New Revised Standard Version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Thus ends the first reading. The second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 to 35, also from the New Revised Standard Version. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, 
and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Thus ends the second reading. Please enjoy the following sermon. In the Gospel of Mark, there is a literary device that the author uses called the Mark and Sandwich. And for those of you who are in CSU Bible studies in the last few weeks, you would remember me talking about this. It's a simple device, but it's one that Mark uses quite frequently. And the way it works is that he will tell a story, or part of one, and then that story will be interrupted by another story that will be different but still connected. And then he will return back to the original story or some variation of it. An example of this comes in the form of the story of Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman, where, where it begins the story with Jesus going to help Jairus' daughter. And then the story is interrupted with the healing of the hemorrhaging woman before returning back to the story of Jairus' daughter. This technique is used to emphasize the central story, the meat of the sandwich, if you will, or the eggplant for the vegetarians among us. Now, you might be wondering where I'm going with this. Actually, some scholars suggest that we can consider the entirety of Mark's gospel as one big Mark and sandwich. And what lies at the center? It's the story that we have just heard, with Jesus asking the question, who do you say that I am? And then the powerful statement, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Today we continue our four-part series on Discipleship 101, the basics of radical discipleship. And in the second part, we consider the theme, the cost of discipleship. What does it mean for us to be a disciple, to follow the one called Jesus? What does it involve? What might it cost us? The story begins with Jesus asking the disciples the question, who do people say that I am? And on the surface, it could seem that Jesus is looking for a quick ego boost. And he kind of gets it when he's compared to important figures like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. But he is quick to change the focus when he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? This is a far more important question because we could ask the question, who do people say Jesus is today? And I'm certain we would get a myriad of responses. People would say that Jesus is the Son of God or the Messiah. Other faiths might say that Jesus was a prophet. I'm sure some would say that Jesus was a good man. And others might say that Jesus is a fictional character. But for us here and now, it doesn't really matter what others say. The question is, who do we say that Jesus is? And this does matter because if we claim to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus, then who Jesus is to us will shape our discipleship. If Jesus is only a sacrifice from which we can receive salvation, then it's no surprise if our discipleship primarily, primarily becomes about saving souls and forgets the importance of changing the world in which we live. If Jesus is only a good man with some good ideas, 
then our discipleship will most likely lack conviction and the drive to keep following when things get tough. If Jesus is only ever the ever-watching judge who looks down upon us, then we will probably see our discipleship take the form as moral police, where our job is to tell others what is wrong with them and what they are doing. Jesus is more than this, much more. And so should our discipleship. And it seems that Peter is on the way of getting this right when he sees Jesus for who he is. He says, you are the Messiah. But that's when the story starts to get weird because Jesus then orders the disciples to tell no one about him. This seems to fly against the evangelical imperative of Christianity. We are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ, so why does Jesus tell the disciples not to? And it only gets weirder from there because Jesus goes on to call Peter Satan. To some, it might seem that Jesus has lost the plot, but I think these two moments are connected. Because Peter is correct. Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is aware that Peter and the disciples don't quite know yet what that means. First century Jews were awaiting the Messiah to come, but the Messiah that they were imagining was a royal warrior who would restore the political fortunes of Israel and destroy its enemies. So Jesus tells the disciples not to say anything about him because being the Messiah is not something that they understand. They're waiting for that royal warrior. He does try to tell them what it means. He goes on and teaches them and says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In fact, Jesus does this three times in total. He does it again in chapters 9 and 10. And each time, the disciples just don't get it. They are unable to reconcile their expectations of what the Messiah should be with these words that Jesus speaks about suffering and death. And on this occasion, Peter attempts to silence Jesus. He rebukes him and says, and that's when Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. It still does seem a little bit harsh, I think. But this is mostly due to the fact that today we equate the term Satan with the devil. But its origins are less demonic. Satan or Satan simply means adversary, the one who opposes or obstructs. And with that in mind, it's actually probably a good description of Peter in that moment as he tries to silence Jesus about speaking the truth about what's to come. With the words, get behind me, Satan, Jesus is asking Peter whose side he's actually on. And this is one of the core challenges of discipleship. Jesus challenges us to pick sides, particularly when we would most comfortably sit in the safety and the security of neutrality, that comfortable middle ground. And yet Bishop Desmond Tutu reminds us of the danger of this when he wrote, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Discipleship is about conviction, even when it costs us. And this is made clear in the next part of the story as Jesus speaks the incredible words, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's perhaps these words more than any other that have shaped my understanding of what discipleship is. 
And as we mentioned, it's no coincidence that these fall in the very center of Mark's gospel because this is, in a nutshell, the central point that Mark wanted us to hear. This is one of the key take-home messages of the gospel. He called the crowds with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Did you notice the start? Jesus is no longer just talking to the disciples. He calls the crowd in to hear this particular bit. So we can't hear the demand of Jesus and think it only applies to the inner circle, to the ministers, the leaders, or the elders. This applies to all of us. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Does it mean that we are to take up some sort of monastic life where we live away from the society so that we're not affected by it? Does it mean that we should cut off our earthly ties with those around us and our friends and family? I think that to deny ourselves is actually to hold ourselves to a very simple idea. It's not all about me. And if you've ever had one of these moments that we all have from time to time where we wonder if the Bible is relevant anymore, I invite you to return to this passage because one of the most important things that the people of our world need to hear is this, that the world does not revolve around you. You are not the centre of the universe. Maybe a tad naive, but it seems that many of the world's issues are in some way caused by this selfishness by this this prioritization of the individual. The huge economic disparity between rich and poor is in part caused by the desire of the individual to have more than the other. The issue of climate change is in part caused because the way of life of the individual is more important than the well-being of creation. We are in the midst of a global crisis with regards to asylum seekers and refugees, which stems from selfish acts of war and violence. And the acts of self-senseless violence that we have mourned over the last few weeks, senseless domestic violence and senseless mass murder, are yet another reminder of the consequences of making it all about ourselves to the extreme where we could end the lives of the innocent, the ultimate act of selfishness. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. And so when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, he is calling us into selflessness. He's calling us to look at the needs of others first. And this doesn't mean that our own needs are meaningless because we too are invited to be part of the kingdom that Christ proclaims, the kingdom that encompasses all creation. But what it does is it reorients us to begin by looking outwards instead of inwards. It positions us to ensure that any gain for ourselves does not come at the expense of others. It is to be more like Jesus. And when we do that in the context of community, when we're looking for the needs of others, then others are looking for the needs of us. The second part can seem a little off-putting as well. Take up your cross. One of the most obvious connections of this is one of martyrdom, to be killed by, because of what you believe. And it can be hard for us to relate to that. No doubt this understanding was very relevant to the early Christian who were martyred for their faith. And similarly, there would be places around the world, persecuted Christians, who today would hear this with great detail. They would hear this and this would be their situation. But what is it for us in 21st century Australia? 
I am grateful that I live in a country where my life is not endangered because of what I believe. But does that mean that the concept of taking up our cross is meaningless? I don't think so because I think it's directly related to the idea of denying ourselves because I think that the cross that we take up is the consequences that we bear when we live out the life of denying our denial of self. The reality of living a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus, is that life does not seek the advancement of ourselves to the detriment of others, but seeks a common good for all. And that doesn't come without consequences. Because when you decide to live for the common good, it means you stand against all that the world entices us with. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of our own security, the pursuit of pleasure and self-gratification. To stand against these things, against that which opposes the kingdom of God, becomes a real challenge and one that we can too easily put in the too hard basket. And so this text becomes a reminder to us of who we are called to be and what we are called to do. And the final part might be the most straightforward. Follow me. We are simply called to follow Jesus, to seek what Jesus seeks, to prioritise what Jesus prioritised. But there's an important caveat for us because what denying ourselves might look like and what taking up our cross might look like can look a bit different for each of us. But the instruction to follow Jesus is the one that gathers us in community. We are gathered together to face the same direction, to hold the same common goal, to walk the way of the risen, crucified one together. And I think this can also help us to understand the very end of the passage where Jesus said, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This paradox can seem confusing. But I wonder whether this is about our lives as individuals, where the most important things is ourselves. Because if that's the type of life that you want to save, then that's unfortunate because in the end, that leads us nowhere. But if you're willing to let go of your life of individual importance for Jesus and for the good news, then you will find life. You will find new life, life that is held in the embrace of community, where brothers and sisters will surround you as a sign of the eternal love of God that surrounds us all. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is about. In the name of the blessed trinity of love. Amen. Thanks for joining us this episode of As Luck Would Have It. Join us again next week to hear more from Reverend Radhika Sukuma-White about the gift of discipleship. If you would like to delve deeper, Leichhardt Uniting Church holds worship services at 10am and 6.30pm each Sunday at 3 Wetherill Street, Leichhardt on Gadigal and Wongal land. This week's preacher is Joyce Tungi, a second-generation Tongan-Australian woman who works as children and families lead with the Pulse Team, the Uniting Church's Emerging Generations Ministry. We would love to see you there or via live stream on Facebook for the morning service. Have a great day.